0: Good morning, welcome once again to Christ Community Presbyterian Church. Uh, we are, thanks, uh, We are uh, continuing our series in Advent. Normally, we'd be finishing up, but we missed a week uh, at the very beginning uh, due to weather. So uh, we're going to have one more week of Advent, even after the Christmas Day. So uh, we'll look forward to one final piece to this puzzle. We've been looking at the the angelic announcements, particularly. We've looked at. Uh, The announcement by Gabriel to both uh, Zechariah and to Mary about the birth of John and the birth of Mary. And next week, we'll look at the angelic uh, announcement to the shepherds. Uh, But this week, this week, we're just going to look at Luke's own announcement, if you will, of the birth of Jesus as we celebrate uh, Christmas. Uh, So, with that, let's turn to our text. We're going to be reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. We're going to look at the first seven verses. Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. It is printed for you in your bulletins, or you can follow along in your Bibles as well. Hear God's word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who came from heaven to earth, took on flesh. We thank you uh, for uh, your testimony in these words of the glorious hope of the world. And we ask that you would uh, just encourage our hearts and remind us of the, the hope of the gospel. Help us to seek Jesus more clearly, his power and his authority. Uh, Lord, as you, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, uh, have ordained these things, this beautiful story of redemption. So, Lord, help us to understand it. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, kids, there's a few of you in here who are not in Children's Church right now. Are you ready for Christmas? Okay, now, I know you're ready to receive gifts, but here's the question. Uh, Have you got presents for your parents? How about your sisters or brothers, your siblings? Your grandparents? Grandma, grandmother, grandfathers? All right, what about cousins, aunts, uncles, first cousins, second cousins? Have you got all the things that you need? Yeah, well, I hope so. I I love uh, uh, Christmas time, but there is a little bit of a sense of tyranny to it. Right? I don't know if you feel that. I love it, but I I, I often find myself being ruled by it for at least a month or maybe less. My wife looks at me and smiles because she's I don't do half as much. Right? Right ruled by it even in more ways. Well, this past week, in a brief moment of respite, my wife and I sat down to introduce our kids to a little piece of childhood nostalgia, the movie A Christmas, a Christmas Story. Now, I, whatever you want to say about that movie, all I can say is that movies made in the 80s for families were a little less family friendly. And you go back and you watch them and you think, should I have Yeah, I don't know. But as I was watching it, what struck me as I watched the movie was the various forms of tyranny in the movie. The furnace, I don't know if you've watched the movie, but the furnace had tyranny over the father. He was down in the basement and it was belching black smoke all the time and he was trying to fix it. Um, The wife and children, the father had tyranny over them. It was definitely a movie that was situated in the 1940s. Um, And you see this come out. There was tyranny of the father over the the children and the the wife. The neighbor's dogs, I don't know if you remember them, but they had tyranny over the family and particularly uh, the father. Remember the bullies? They had tyranny. Uh, Right over the kids as they went to and from school each day. The teacher had tyranny over her students. And each of these groupings, each of these groups of of people, um, they all fought against it in some way or another. They tried to wrest control back over their life and fight against it. You'll remember the wife and the lamp, maybe. We'll just leave it at that. If you haven't seen the movie, fine, don't worry about it. But the lamp breaks, and uh, it just breaks according to the wife. Um, but she's fighting back against the tyranny of her own husband. And then uh, what about uh, the, the furnace? Well, the father, what does he do? He curses. It's part of the weirdness of the story. But anyway, he curses and curses at this thing. He's fighting back against the tyranny of the furnace. Um, and, of course, the bullies, right? What does Ralphie do? He fights back. He fights back but ralphie this whole story of ralphie wanting this bb gun it was his way of gaining control of having control over his life and and ruling not letting this these evil people's out there rule over him he had this sort of dreamscape that he would go into and he would he would uh in that dream, have this glorious BB gun, and he would fight off the bad guys and the robbers, and any time the world would show its tyranny, he would go into this little dreamscape. Anyway, if you haven't seen the movie, I'm not sure I'd recommend it. You can, It's, it's a classic, but, but there was this sense of tyranny all throughout, and none of us like that. None of us like that feeling of helplessness, and we all want control over our lives in some way or another. That's Kind of built into us. And of course, the reality is, if we all had ultimate control over our lives, things wouldn't really be any better. There would still be tyranny. There would still be tyranny. It would be the overarching problem of the world, right? The tyranny of sin. It reigns over us with an iron grip ultimately drags us down to the grave. Well, the Christmas story, the Christmas story, is a story about power and control as well, about tyranny, but then about triumph. Ultimately, it's about good news, not that we get BB guns to fight off the bad guys. The sovereign king of heaven and earth comes to break the reigning power of sin and death. The story of Christmas is a story about a sovereign king who has come. What a glorious hope we have in that. And I want to look at this in three ways. Three ways. First, the power of earthly authorities and kings. Secondly, the sovereign power of God over all those earthly powers and authorities. And then finally, the sovereign power of God Born in a manger. So that's where we're headed. Sovereign King has come. First, the power of earthly kings. D.V. Filius. D.V. Filius. And I'm probably butchering my Latin because I don't know it. Um, it was a, a, a common moniker name given to Caesar Augustus. D.V. Filius. Divi, the Latin word from which we get the word divine. Yes. Uh, it means of God. And filius, the words where we get filial and words like that, means son. So is it, Divi, filius together means son of God. Of course, Augustus, whose real name or a given name was Octavian, um, it was natural for people to call him son of God. He was. After all, the adopted son of Julius Caesar, the self-proclaimed god. Um, uh, but Caesar himself, Caesar Augustus, that is, himself, uh, also considered, was considered godlike. Especially by the end of his life, uh, he was venerated uh, as such. Caesar Augustus was a great warrior, uh, a great and shrewd politician, after uh, a period of joint rule, there were three that were ruling at a time, uh, only one remained, one left standing. Uh, you'll remember one of those names, which was Mark Antony, who, after a loss of a great battle, commits suicide. But Lepidus, or Le- I think that's how you pronounce his name, uh, was the, other, the third uh, ruler. But the one left standing was uh, this great warrior, uh, Augustus Octavian, uh, he did a great job as far as uh, uh, emperors go as consolidating power through his military prowess. Um, he, after th- they were kind of like dictators, these three, after establishing, reestablishing the empire, he uh, reinstated the Senate. But he retains um, autonomous control over uh, the, the sword, over the, the army. So he had all the power, he was the real power behind. Uh, even the Senate. He extended the Roman Empire and established what would come to be called the Pax Romana. This was, of course, the peace of Rome that lasted a period of 200 years. Now, of course, in there, there was always battles going on in the fringes, and there was, I think, one uh, civil war. But overall, there was a great peace uh, for 200 years over the empire, all thanks to this great emperor, Divi Felius, the son of God. Historians note that in his most famous statue, Augustus of Prima Porta, um, you can look it up online, as there's a picture there, um, it was erected in, in, in modern-day Italy, is depicted um, uh, the pa- in the pattern of, the, the way that he was formed uh, was in the pattern of the Greek gods rather than the Roman way of, of doing statues. Uh, Augustus is portrayed, even though he's in his middle age by the time this This uh, statue is erected. He's portrayed as a young man, full of life and vigor. He is idealized, right? He is the perfect picture uh, of a young man. Uh, He's wearing his uh, breastplate for armor, but he has no shoes on. Uh, One historian noted that this was a symbol, a a sign that he recognized his godlikeness. Interesting. Uh, all common attributes of statues that gods and goddesses of the Greek era would have been um, made like. Ovid, uh, he wrote that great uh, work, Metamorphosis, said of Augustus, he was talking of Julius Caesar, but he was sort of singing the praises of Julius Caesar in this great poem uh, at, toward the end of the poem. but in this section he's talking about Augustus, and he says this: seeing his sons, that is Augustus's good works, Caesar, that is Julius, just to keep things straight, acknowledges that is Julius acknowledges that they, the works of Augustus, are greater than his own and delights at being surpassed by him so uh, you know, in the mind of Ovid, who lived during the period of Augustus, was saying Julius, as he sat, you know, in the Pantheon, was looking down and was praising uh, his son. Uh, he goes on in a little bit, and he says Jupiter commands the heavenly citadels and the kingdoms of the threefold universe, but Earth is ruled by Augustus. Each is a father. And the master. Kind of get the picture of this godlike man uh, in the person of Augustus Divi Filius, son of God. And in our text, we are introduced to him as the one who commands the whole world, the whole world, to be registered. Now, what was the registration for? Well, of course, it was money, right? Taxes, right? That's the, that was the goal. Um, Now there's a a little bit of questions uh, going on here in the text with regard to the timing of the census. Um, There is this other name that's mentioned, Quirinius, um, and he had an official governorship sometime later after the birth of Jesus where there was another um, um, uh, census that was taken. Um, And so the question is, Jesus was probably born around 6 BC, Quirinius is Uh, Governorship, where there was another census, was around 6 AD. So there's this conflict in the text. Um, How do these comport? And I would simply say two truths how we govern, how we understand the text. And I I can give you details. I don't think it's necessary. Uh, But I just want to, in case there's a concern you have, I would simply say these two truths. First, Luke lived around this time was, as we see from the rest of his gospel and from the book of Acts, a man who paid close attention to the details uh, and the facts of whatever he was researching, um, and even refers to this second uh, census in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, verse 37. Um, and it's highly improbable that Luke would write something wrong that would be so easily verifiable, right? Right? People that lived during the time could say, oh, wait, Luke, you got it wrong. You might want to change this." So I just want to highlight that as a first thing. And the second thing, and it's really basic, um, we have before us the word of God. Um, And though we may not fully grasp all the historical points, they're lost to us. At least now they're lost to us. um, We can have confidence that what we read is true. But what's the point of adding this little note about Quirinius? Well, I'll give you my two cents. I think Quirinius, though he wasn't officially governor till later, was, and we know this from histor- historical fact, part of um, the, 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 the uh, coalition of people under Augustus and would have been involved in the government up to that uh, even earlier than um, 6 a.D. and therefore, I think there was probably another census that he was involved in. I, that's my own. That's my own take. But regardless of the timing, Luke is pointing out to us this, that the reality that the whole world was to be counted by Rome, right? The Roman authorities were counting the whole world. And by whole world, we mean the Roman Empire, right? So there is other peoples in far-flung places around the world, but this Roman world. And Augustus, for the sake of his purse to exercise power and control was exerting his absolute power and authority. That's what's going on. Divi, Philius, son of God. Now isn't it true this is what all kings and rulers do? They control their world. They control the people that are under them. Uh, and that sounds really bad, but I mean, it's just, that's their job, they're to govern. And sometimes they do it for good, and sometimes they do, or I would say many times, they do it for ill. And I might argue that the power of counting and of taxation may be the most potent picture of power and control. When someone can say, give me your money, like a bully, right? And I'm not suggesting, okay, now I've got to stop here. Later on in Romans, it is very clear. It says, render under Caesar what is Caesar's. There's nothing inherently wrong with a tax. So I'm just throwing that out there. Just be careful. You don't read into what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that we all feel that power and control that governments and rulers and kings have, both for good and for ill. We all of us feel it. And, and I would say this in today's day and age, as we watch the news and engage in our political sphere, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're, you, you are on. You can't help but feel as though the powers that are at work are pervasive, that they're omnipotent, that, that there's nothing that we can do. Even in a democratic republic, it feels like the control is gone. There's nothing for us to do. Whatever side of the aisle you feel you're on, but I want to be clear here: it's not just the power of political parties or presidents, or the Senate or the Congress, the House of Representatives, or even your town council. It's not. It's not just there, right? That we feel this way. It could be all in lots of other ways. We feel. Various forms of tyranny. Time has its demands. Bosses have their demands. Our bodies, frail and broken. It feels sometimes like there's a tyranny of our physical bodies breaking apart. But reiterating what I said earlier, most powerful of all is that pervasive power of indwelling sin rules over us it grips us it counts and extracts from us we're always under its thumb do you feel that? we just talked uh, this morning in our um, Sunday school class about the struggle of besetting or indwelling sin and and the way it kind of sucks you in and doesn't let you go it's its power. Well, the advent of Jesus shows us a different story, different picture. There is only one who is omnipotent and who is sovereign, who is king over heaven and earth. This is the second thing that I want to point out the sovereignty of God over all earthly powers. The Romans didn't necessarily care that everyone went to their own town to be counted. Um, um, This was a uniquely Jewish way of accounting uh, that they would be counted by tribe and by town and by lineage. And so we see here Luke, a Gentile convert, uh, is making a big deal about Joseph uh, going back to Bethlehem and with him Mary. And they go from Bethlehem, from Nazareth to Bethlehem in Judea, the town of David, because Joseph was of the lineage of David. Interestingly, throughout the Old Testament, this is just an interesting point. It's called the city of David here. What is the city of David throughout the Old Testament? It's Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem, right? Yet here, Bethlehem is called the city of of David well who is David? of course he was one of the most powerful kings of Israel he was one of the greatest kings of Israel. he was the great mighty warrior and he was the one to whom it was promised one from his son would be, one from his seed would become the, the reigning sovereign uh, over the eternal kingdom Second uh, Samuel chapter 7 um, but it's interesting city of Bethlehem Why Bethlehem well course, David was born there. Um, it was his birthplace. And it reminds me of a story in the Old Testament where David, he's, he's cut off from uh, Bethlehem and he's, he's in sort of a pitched battle, and, 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 but he has this desire. Uh, he longs for water from a well that's right outside the city of Bethlehem. And so his mighty warriors go and they get this water. And they bring it back to him, risking life and limb. And he is in awe that they would do this. And he takes it and he pours it out. I was thinking about that. That that idea of this beautiful thing from his home that is so precious to him. and 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 Bethlehem, in that sense, I think was precious to him. It was it was the place of his father. It was the place where he shepherded the flocks. It was the place where there was this beautiful well that that he would remember the the beauty of his of water. And and this was the birthplace of the king. Prophet Micah, some generations after David, prophesying uh, in the sort of period of the split kingdom, he's prophesying uh, that there would be one again who would come from the city of Bethlehem, from this Davidic city. It's interesting context because what's going on in, in Micah's day is that the Assyrians are coming in and they're, they are conquering the northern kingdom and they're threatening the southern kingdom. This Assyrian force is coming in and putting a stranglehold on the people of God. And this is what it says in, uh, in Micah chapter 5. And it will be in that day, declares the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. The Lord here is speaking about the Assyrians. I will also cut off the cities of your land and tear down all your fortifications. I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you will have fortune tellers no more. This is this is the voice of this great king who had come from Bethlehem. I will cut off your carved images and your sacred pillars from among you so that you will no longer bow down to work with your to the work of your hands. I will root out your ashram, the gods from among you and destroy your cities and I will execute vengeance in anger and wrath on the nations which have not Obeyed. So we think of O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. But the promise was of a conquering king who would conquer. Powerful king who would restore Israel, destroy the enemies. Fast forward to Bethlehem. In 6 B.C., around this time of Luke's writing, Augustus is exerting power like the Assyrians of old. And yet, all of it, was in the definite plan of God to bring about his king and his kingdom. Only one sovereign rules over all, working out all of human history to his ends for his glory, to establish his kingdom and bring about the redemption and restoration of his people. That king rules and reigns on high as we come to celebrate Christmas this year once again. What we're doing is we're celebrating the birth of the little baby. But really we're declaring that the Lord reigns. That the Lord is king. That his kingdom is the only everlasting kingdom. That he rules over all kings and kingdoms and that nothing is outside of his control. That all of history is in his hands. I was thinking about this. Few, few of us Uh, or let me say it this way. There are few things that can upset us more than when we don't feel like we have control over a situation. Right? I I, I feel that when things feel out of control. And we either act like Ralphie and we recede into some fantasy realm and find a place of control. Whatever that fantasy realm is. Or we can act like Ralphie's father, we can lash out at everyone and everything around us when we don't have control. Or we can act like his mother. We can be subversive and passive-aggressive and try to, try to kind of poke the bear over and over again to try to get control. Or we can recognize that having control is just trading one form of tyranny for another form of tyranny. You know, you know, when things are ultimately in your control, how it goes. Because it doesn't deal with the fundamental issue. The fundamental thing that controls us. Sin. The tyranny of it. But this is the glorious truth. The Lord of glory reigns. He's sovereign. And He is working all things for His glory and for the good of His people. He's pulling it all together. He reigns and from way back in the garden to the time of Abraham to the time of David to the time of the prophets all the way up to the time of Jesus till He comes again. The Lord of glory is working all things together. And we see this preeminently in the king who was born in a manger. The sovereign king born in a manger. As my father pointed out in a community group, we like to embellish the Christmas story. Right? We sentimentalize it a little bit. But in fact... It's really a, 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 a most counterintuitive story of King's birth, right? We, we would think that um, in this story we would have some grand uh, 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 pomp or circumstance or entourage that surrounds the coming of Jesus. But it's a very, very simple story. Luke sums it up in a couple of sentences. Mary was ready to give birth and because there was no room in the inn or Airbnb or whatever, she gave birth in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, her firstborn. Of course it's her firstborn. She's a virgin part of the miraculous story right she's this is their firstborn son the apple of her eye but he was the firstborn son in so many other ways he was the only begotten son of the father he was the firstborn from grief before creation he is the heir of all things he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And He was born to bring many sons to glory. He was born in order that he might, we might be called sons of God. He was raised as the firstborn of the resurrection, the firstborn of the dead, that we might in His train be brought to glory with Him, enjoying all the benefits of the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the firstborn. Divi Filius, the Son of God. And this is the awesome, sovereign power of God. That he was born the second Adam, the firstborn from among the dead. For he was the one who would go to the cross. It's all backwards. Right, Augustus, if you're going to be a king or you're going to be an emperor, you're supposed to be crowned and you're supposed to have statues and you're supposed to be raised up and you're supposed to be magnified and songs are supposed to be sung of you. And of course they are of Jesus now. But in his day, he was of no reputation. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he went to the cross. And on that cross, he broke the tyranny of sin and death. Born in a manger. And he rose again. And as he rose and ascended to heaven, sent his spirit. says, you're coming with me. All those who put their faith and trust in this king the only sovereign one, the glorious reigning one, the great Messiah, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Vivi, Filius, the one who reigns. Not a tyrannical rule, but a rule of grace and mercy and justice and love. Amen. What a glorious thing we celebrate this time of year. Divi Felios, the son of God, is born. Let's pray.